What's up, guys? Welcome to the fifth episode of The Cardigan Cowboy, and I will make this quick for you guys. I know it's a long episode, but it's a phenomenal one because it's Brett Edwards. He's a he's an actor who's got to work with the likes of Bradley Cooper on American Sniper. Uh, he's been in The Longest Ride. He's also uh, working currently on Narcos, which is a phenomenal show. So I'm excited to introduce you guys to this, this uh, gentleman. And uh, also, he's wrote a book, and it's actually really good like it's called the sacred land and um oh man i don't know if i've ever had an ending so good on a story or a book or a movie or anything so um i've passed the book around people love it and uh, i think you should go get it it's on amazon it's called sacred land and and uh it's wrote by brett edwards also, I want to take just one minute here and tell you a little bit about what's going on with me and the Cardigan Cowboy and the podcast. You'll notice that we've gone to audio, mainly because, well, we quit our job. Our corporate America job we, we got out of, which is not something we're proud of, but it wasn't a fit for us. So we got out. I landed a job in Minnesota. I loaded up a horse trailer with my hefty steed of a horse, Eddie. And I say hefty because he looks like a barrel, but... um we rolled out to Minnesota, and we have gone to just audio. So starting with this episode uh, and for the next 10 months, we're going to be recording just audio and putting it on all the platforms. I think we're on like nine platforms. You can find us. So if you're listening to this, please follow, share, subscribe, uh, do your thing, like it, uh, promote it, download it, and uh, we just we just really, really appreciate you. And like always, uh, if we raise any money, we're going to give half of it away. We're going to give half of it away to a nonprofit chosen by our guest. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. And I hope this episode brings value. So here is Brett Edwards, a well-known actor and writer and just a phenomenal person and a guy that hightailed it out of L.A. And also some cool is note that he went to L.A. with like $4 in his pocket. I mean, he did the real deal. So um, he's made some of himself. Now he's a beautiful family. And they've moved themselves to Texas and uh, I think uh, we need more people like him in this world. So, Brett Edwards, hope you enjoy. Bye. There we go. Brett, can you hear me? Yeah, how's it, how's it coming through on my end? Sounds great. Sounds great, man. Awesome. We made it. We're here, man. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Look at us. Look at us. Well, um, Brett Edwards, welcome to the Card Game Cowboy podcast, and thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to uh, just hang out with good old goat roper like me here in Oklahoma. So, Shoot. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, tell everybody kind of where you're at in the world right now and, and uh, what you're about, what you do. Well, I'm an actor and a writer. Uh, I, I guess I like to fancy myself more of a writer than an actor just because of the stigma that comes with it uh, in the town of Los Angeles. I moved out to Los Angeles, I guess, about a decade ago in September of 2009. And then now I'm down in North Texas near Dallas. I just moved my family uh, probably about three weeks ago uh, between all this COVID nonsense and the state shutting down. We just and the schools and all the kids at home in schools. I got two little girls and we had to get out. And so now we're in Texas and we're loving every minute of it. And we're to the point where we wish we would have done it sooner, but we're, we're happy we're here now. And, uh, we just taking in the fresh air and enjoying the, enjoying the park, even though it's winter. That's great. Well, 
I know Texas is glad to have you. And was was the push to get to Texas a lot of just the COVID deal, or was it like a long time coming? Everybody, why I ask is, it seems like that trail is being blazed right now with all kinds of people hightailing it out of there. Yeah, it was it was always it was always in the picture uh, between me and my wife. We didn't want to raise our kids in uh, Los Angeles specifically. We had looked at smaller towns uh, outside of Los Angeles, um, you know, even as far north as Santa Barbara and San Luis Obispo. But California just got so dang expensive that uh, we, you know, we felt like we didn't know if we could ever catch up. And we spend our, we felt like at some point we'd spend our entire lives working, just working our life away to, to break even because everything just keeps going up. And I remember I, I was, I have a buddy that's a mortgage lender and I'm sitting there thinking you know, this market at some point it's got to crash. Right. And he said, I've been in Los Angeles my whole life and it's done nothing but go up and I don't see it doing anything but go up. And I mean, that was a few years ago and it's done nothing but go up in this COVID market. It's People are buying houses left and right. I have a really good friend in real estate and I just talked to him uh, two days ago and was just amazed still how things are going on. Even my little neighborhood here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, it's going up and up and all you hear. I mean, we're in the worst times ever, right? This virus is taking a hold. Business is shutting down. And my home is appraising for about $20,000 more than it did when the whole thing started. It's unbelievable. Right. It's incredible. Um, well, well, um, man, I, I've got to spend some time out there in L.A. And I've got to work with people that grew up out there. And they're always blown away whenever um, I show them what they could buy out here in good old Oklahoma with what their house, uh, <laughs> they got like a cardboard box with the door barely hanging on the front of it kind of house. And uh, uh, for about 750,000 and I show them the, the 80 acre ranch <laughs> with a swimming pool and five, five bedrooms they could buy out here in Oklahoma. And, and I, I believe I've actually convinced a few to grab their stuff and head out here. So uh, uh, we, we love hard work and great, uh, powerful people, uh, just like you guys moving out here and, and getting hope. So, well, that's the truth, man. That I, I know people they spent a half a million dollars on a two bedroom apartment and they got a, you know, brush past 600 tourists just to go to the grocery store and step over a few homeless people when they walk off their front porch and they walk out onto their balcony and the, the railings black because it's covered in pollution and car dust and you name it. And it's like, good night, you know, I mean, it, and that, and that apartment is valued at way more than the house that I grew up in by far. And so it just, that's a, that's one of the reasons, you know, my wife and I, we looked at each other and we're, we're like, we're going to get out the second we get a chance, we're going to get out. And, it's funny, too, because I, I feel like Los Angeles is a bit of this black hole, right? It, people go there. They go there seeking whatever. Usually it's, it's self-serving, right? Whether it be fame, fortune, big city living, whatever. And you get there, and I think for a lot of people, they really enjoy it. But then the romanticism starts to wear off, and you find yourself more and more thinking, gosh, I, you know, I, like I like what I do out here, but I wish I could do it somewhere else but you just kind of get stuck in a rut in the day to day and because getting through the day and getting through traffic into the office and back is such a hassle. And you're thinking to yourself, God, I wish I could just get out and COVID 
I mean, I hate to say it, but it gave us the kick in the pants where we were like, let's do it. Let's do it. Let's see if we can get out of our lease. We were renting a place in Tarzana, which is a little uh, neighborhood, kind of it butts up to Encino. It's in between a town called Encino and Thousand Oaks, or I'm sorry, Woodland Hills. And uh, our landlord was gracious enough. And, and uh, shoot, I'll tell you what, we put in a couple offers on houses here in Dallas, and we got beat out by all cash offers both times by <laughs> families from California. And all the realtors are walking around doing FaceTime tours. And when we moved to Dallas, they unloaded our, our cars off the semi. And every single car on that truck had a, had a California tag on it. And he was unloading all of them in Dallas. Unbelievable. I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, man, we'll add one to you here in Oklahoma. We have uh, legalized marijuana, medical marijuana. So uh, real estate, oh, my, buddy, my buddy in uh, – Real estate, if he's not selling homes to Californians, he's selling them land to, to put uh, weed farms on. So it's it's just the Wild West out here in Oklahoma. How do you feel about that? Well, I tell you, I um, I partook in a little smoking weed growing up uh, in, in sure. college and things. And I think, um, all right, my honest views on it. Let's just be honest here. I don't think it's as bad as drinking. Uh, and here I am sipping my favorite bourbon. Uh, and, there you go. but I am in a very strict industry as far as drug testing goes. I'm, I'm, I'm in the oil, natural gas, so I cannot partake, but you know what? A little, uh, I like it when I'm skiing a good old, just a good old little smoke <laughs> or a nice edible to help you sleep. Um, but like anything, it needs to be in moderation and doesn't need to grab a hold of you. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think there's a, a balance there as far as industry goes, it has brought revenue to Oklahoma. And there's been a lot of lives changed for the better. And yeah. I think uh, as this goes on, we will, we will see the, the repercussions on the negative side. But right now, I mean, young entre entrepreneurs are, are able to make some of themselves and that they're passionate about it. And I tell you, there's a group here out of Tulsa, uh, 918 Elevate. They're a group of, of good people and, and majority women. And they've come together and they're very professional about it. And they're doing great. So... Um, there's some good things. There's bad things. No how, how matter. No matter how you look at it, um, business is business, and it needs to be kind of regulated. I don't. I don't know if we're ready to regulate it really, but uh, we're going to give it a go. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. Yeah, man. How do you feel about that topic? And did California? Did you see some of the bad side there in California with all the marijuana? You know, there's a lot of dispensaries everywhere, um, and just like anything else, any other business, there's some really nice ones. There's some really, really high class elite ones. And then there's others that are in bad parts and you kind of see the, the fallout from that. And you got, you know, if you go down to Venice beach, they got people, I don't I haven't been there in a while, but they used to walk the boardwalk in Venice beach and there'd be these guys holding up signs that says, Oh, your back hurt. Your, your joints hurt. Go to the, the doctor's in today, go get your medical marijuana license. And you know, you pay 40 bucks and you have a California, ID and they issue you a card and you can go get weed anywhere. But I, you know, I've met with some people who are, who are chemists and scientists and they've been in the, um, they, they started really producing CBD and all the medicinal aspects of pot. And I mean, I, I, I like the CBD. I think there's definitely a, a positive to it. The marijuana, I think, look, if you can regulate it, if you can stop it coming over the border, uh, you know, if you can shut that part of the business from the cartels down, then 
then that might be that might be good. Yep. You know, I, I think, gosh, this country, what are we, $24 trillion in debt? Put some taxation on it and let's start making some of that deficit back. I agree. And I think I struggle with the really hard rules, like the absolutely no, we're going to treat this like a class one drug. You are going to prison type of deal. Um, I have a really good friend that um, that her son uh, has epilepsy. He, he suffers from seizures all the time, sometimes uh, right. 10 to 20 seizures a day. And since uh, uh, medical marijuana has come out, it has reduced it down where he has a few a week. I mean, it's unbelievable. And to think that she could go to prison or, or to uh, that the kid. Anyway, I don't think I don't know what the repercussions are with the kid, but I know she could get in a lot of trouble depending on where she's right. at. And uh, it's all for good and it's all to help. And uh, th- those kind of stories are sad. Now, I am the type. I don't like it whenever somebody takes that story and takes it to the extreme uh, and thinks it just needs to be handed out like candy, because uh, I think there are some bad side side effects for kids uh, getting on it a lot as young and and through school. And and it does zap motivation a lot of times. Uh, I've seen it firsthand, but um, yeah, I, I like a, um, I think I like an understanding government group, government body, man, come together. Let's have these conversations. Let's talk about it. And let's not make crazy sentences for people just trying to do something good or help their, their lives. So. Right. And the regulation too, you get something together and hopefully, I mean, most government bodies are pretty inept at whatever they do, but I guess you can hope that you get enough inept people in a room where the needle doesn't move too much one way or the other. Right. But hopefully they get the right experts where they, you know what you're putting in your body. And I agree with you. I, you know, I, I don't think it's any worse than alcohol at all. Um, I, I think alcohol is probably way worse. I mean, from my personal experience, it is, I haven't had a drink and it must be, it's over two years now. Oh, good um, for you. Yeah. I, I just, um, I remember I used to drink socially and then as I, started living and working in LA more, it became more of a mandatory thing personally. And I found myself doing it before work. I'd wake up, I'd go to set hungover. And, um, I just, you know, I had two kids, I have two kids. And so I, I sat there and, um, finally just looked myself in the mirror one day and was like, I got to make a change because this is terrible. You know, you get irritable about stuff and when you're hung over and you're only looking toward, you're only looking for that five o'clock hour to come by or whatever. And, and so I read this book that, I mean, I was, I remember I was working on a show called lethal weapon and um, I had drinking like three quarters of a bottle of Jägermeister the night before. And I'm sitting in my trailer, you know, I, I was sitting in my trailer for probably 14 hours and we went over that day. And I think I shot for one of the hours and I only had one line that day. So I had way too much time to think and I went to the Barnes and Noble and I bought this book that changed my life. And it's, I I looked at it and I thought, well, I, you know, I got to give anything a shot. And it's this, it's a book called this naked mind and this naked mind, this naked mind. And, and, and and it's a woman who, uh, her name, I believe her name is Annie Grace. And she had this moment where she was, she had lived in London at the time and she was on taking the tube and she was taking her kids uh, on, you know, on the London subway to school. And she dropped her thermos at seven in the morning and like 24 ounces of beer spilled out all over the platform. And she was embarrassed. And that's when she was like, I got to make a change. And so she started uh, studying 
her father and, and she remembered that her father was this big executive in the film industry in New York city back in the seventies. And then he drank every night, everything he did, he drank. And she said, and then one time she, uh, they just upped and moved to the wilderness of Colorado. They had to take a snowmobile to school. I mean, they were out in the country and she said her father never went near another drink again. And so she started studying why could he do that? And why was she having so much trouble dropping the habit? And so she went into the science and the chemistry of it all. And um, she kind of breaks it down in the book. And it's, I mean, it's amazing. It changed my life. It changed my view uh, on the whole thing because my, you know, my dad sold Jägermeister for a living. He, he kind of, wow. he was one of the guys that put Jägermeister on the map. He started working for a company called Sidney Frank Importing back in the, I think he got with them in the 70s or the 80s. And he was a low guy on the totem pole. And they gave him Jägermeister because he's like, give it to me, I'll sell it. And so Sidney was like, okay, give it a shot. And his whole pitch was he'd go around the bars and they'd say, well, what is this? And he goes, and he's looking at the bottle and he's like, well, it looks like shit. It tastes like shit. And if you throw it against the wall, it's going to stick like shit. But I guarantee <laughs> it's going to sell. And <laughs> so... And so they, they, he'd start giving them bottles out and, and, the, you know, and he even told me this at one point where he's like, you know, it's kind of a rough business because, and, and this is where everything started resonating with me is where he said, you know, it's, a, it's not exactly an admirable business because every year we get a new batch of clients, you know, when the kids turn 21 and even now it's starting sooner. And so For sure. uh, I read this lady's book and, and my God, it's changed my life, changed my whole outlook. And I've been thankful for that book and, and what she wrote ever since. Well, that's great. And I love to hear whenever somebody can walk away and, and feel satisfied. And, and uh, I say all this while I'm sipping my little whiskey here. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, uh, no, but no, but no problem. I mean, and, and it's not, I think that's great. Right. I, yep. I'm, I'm the personality where it's like, there's this, um, there's this speech in a show called the West wing where the chief of staff, um, you know, they're, they're grilling him about being an addict. And he's like, look, and it's not a, it's not a stupid or smart thing. They're like, you're so smart. How could you be an addict? And he said, he said, look, it's not a stupid or smart thing. You know how many alcoholics are in Mensa? And he goes on to talk about how he's like, I don't understand how people can just have one drink. I don't understand how you can just see that, mm -hmm. you know, half glass of wine and just sit there. And I think I'm kind of that personality. You know, and, and that's so that's such a great point because it's so much into knowing yourself and not being ashamed to go, look, I can't handle that. That's I'm not wired like that or, or pull yourself right. back. And and uh, I love that. And and um, I luckily I'm a lightweight. I'm a big wimp. Uh, be honest with you. I just like to sip <laughs> a little bit and hang out. And usually I just have it neat. And even when I go out drinking, I I, I could count on one hand how many times I just really put one on. And, uh, but a lot of people just can't handle it. And I, I, I'm always so proud of people to just whenever they, they look within themselves and go, look, this isn't good. This isn't right. And then what's even so much better is you see those people kind of like what you're saying that realize that about themselves, but they are out beating people up about drinking a little bit and hanging out and, and making them uh, feel bad. So I just love that. I love when people self-search and make a great decision for themselves and, uh, and rock it. So, yeah. Yeah. And that, not, and I'm not out, you know, like I, I don't tout many things, but this, this naked mind, this book, I mean, it, 
one of the things that it did, which I was concerned about when I was drinking, was that um, you feel like if you stop, you're going to miss out, and the good times are not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And she relayed that in the book, was she said, go watch kids, you know, watch the next time kids are around. When you see kids that don't know each other, it takes about five or 10 minutes, maybe 20 minutes for them to warm up. They really don't talk to each other. They really fill each other out. They do their own thing. But then 25, 30 minutes later, they're thick as thieves, right? And they're the best friends ever. And she said, adults are the exact same way. Yeah. Go to a party or go to a dinner and nobody really talks to one another in the beginning. And the first thing the waiter does is he comes by and says, what well, can I get you to drink? Everybody gets the drink and all of a sudden they're off talking. And it's a mental thing because... You don't need the drink. You just feel like you need the drink, you know, and, I, <laughs> yeah. and, and you feel like if you don't do the, take the drink, you're going to miss out. You're not going to be as social and you're not going to be as funny. And she's like, <laughs> and I think this was especially true for me. She's like, you're actually not as funny as you think you are when you're drunk. You know, what I, <laughs> you're not as clever and you're not as charming. And, uh, and my wife was, was definitely one to point that stuff out. And I, love her to death and appreciate it because it was so true and so yeah it's not about i wouldn't it's never about knocking anybody for you know so we live in the greatest country in the world you get to do whatever the hell you want to do and you don't have to answer to anybody about it and um you know obviously if, if it's within reason within the law but um yeah that's, that's I, a big a big part of the book too well thanks for sharing the book i'm gonna check that out and uh you know, you kind of talked about maybe uh, uh, something about your home value back home. Let's let's go all the way back to where do you come from, man? Where, where's home? Where's growing up at? I grew up in a in a in a suburb of Louisville, Kentucky, and where you know the only thing that people really know us for is Kentucky basketball, college basketball, and the Kentucky Derby. And I went to plenty of those growing up. But one thing that I did growing up. Uh, that Mighty Ducks came out when I was six years old, I think. And I love that movie. And here I am sitting in Kentucky saying, Mom, I want to play hockey. <laughs> and so she looks at me here in Kentucky in the 90s, and she's like, okay, all right. And God love her, my mom to death. She's, she goes, we'll find you some hockey equipment. And so she found... And, and, you know, you think in retrospect, we went into this random guy's house into his basement where he had all this hockey gear and she purchased this entire bag of hockey gear and said, okay, have at it. And I got on a team and it turns out that the games are at five 30 in the morning because the younger you are, the earlier you play because in Kentucky at the time in, in Louisville, there was one ice rink. And so you've got a hockey league that goes all the way up to 18 year olds and it starts at six and you've got to, (laughs) they've got to have ice time for everybody to play on Saturday and Sunday, maybe just Saturday. And um, so then, you know, my poor mother, she works her, she worked her tail off like 80 hours a week uh, working for the state of Kentucky doing uh, sales and marketing. And then she'd get up at five 30, you know, four 30 in the morning to drive me to the hockey rink. And she had learned how to put on the equipment because I'm six years old and I have no idea what I'm doing. And it took me a minute. And so, you know, you can imagine my mother sitting there in the, in the boys locker room. That's all the dads around. My dad was usually traveling. And so my mother's sitting there tying my skates and lacing up my skates. And I played hockey. We ended up traveling. I went, I ended up on a traveling team at 12 
playing a, a regional tournament called Silver Sticks. We won that, and we ended up going to Canada, where we got our butts whooped by these Canadians <laughs> who, had, who, you know, they come out with a hockey puck in their teeth and a hockey <laughs> stick in their hands. And by 13 years old, these boys are men. They're like six foot tall, and they're the fastest some bucks that I've ever seen. And I'm not kidding. When I was a freshman in high school, I wrestled only because they had nobody else at the 98 pound and under weight class because I was 94 pounds as a freshman. I we mean, got I was that tiny. in common, bro. I wrestled at 86 pounds <laughs> my freshman high school. <laughs> yeah, dude, we got that in common. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And so I didn't sprout until I was in college. And uh, Me too. Gosh, dang it. But, uh, yeah, I you know, I grew up in Kentucky. Um, and I got my first job at a golf course when I was 13 years old i was the cart boy at a, a country club called persimmon ridge where my dad my dad would play golf all day and i'd sit there and work and wash the carts and clean members clubs and um <laughs> i remember i got they they really went out on a limb because they liked my dad so much that they gave me this this 13 year old boy a job driving these carts and washing them and and, and um, you know i was in the range picker moving around that big rig and collecting all the balls and I remember I got real fancy. We had these convertible carts that we were allowed to use that didn't have the top. And we had this new kid that showed up one day. I had been there a summer. I thought I really knew the ropes. <laughs> and um, this kid's, I'm like, here, let's go to the back. I'll show you how the range picker works. And I'll show you the, the, you know, the little gravel quarry there where we do all our fishtailing. And so I sat there and I got the cart going real fast down this hill. And I hit the brakes and I fishtailed. And the kid wasn't even paying attention, and he got thrown out of the cart and rolled into the gravel and cut his arm up real well. And we and and we got back to the the caddy barn, and I was like, "Look, you can't say anything, <laughs> right? You're good. Please don't, please don't, please don't tell uh, the pro anything about us." He's like, "No, man, it's good. I won't do anything." It turns out that he was the nephew of the owner of the entire club, uh... and the next day I came into work. You know, I was fired. And <laughs> hey, everybody needs to get fired once in their life, man. Everybody needs to feel that for sure. Oh gosh, I—that's for sure. I have done it way more. <laughs> I have done it way more than uh, anybody else needs to. My wife always jokes uh, about me because she says that every job that I ever had before acting or writing, I either got fired or I quit before I got fired. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm kind of the, the king of leaving as well. So I get it. And, uh, uh that kind of actually, I had this wrote down that I want to talk to you about, you know, being an actor and, and, and auditioning, I know is, uh, you know, you're putting yourself out there. This podcast is kind of the first time I've ever truly just put myself out there for the scrutiny of the public. And I was kind of wondering, how do you deal with criticism and failure and, and those things? I think there's a lot of insight uh, that actors have because your, your livelihood, you're only as good as your last part. And um, a lot of times going in front of people and trying to display and, and show your, your creation um, can be very tough at the end whenever they do not like it one bit. Yeah, that's, I think one of the things about, acting and putting yourself out there and doing this podcast is 
and this is in any type of creative medium across the board, is it takes a hell of a lot of effort and a hell of a lot of discipline to do something like that and to put yourself out there in front of an audience who has no authority whatsoever to judge it, yet they are the harshest critics of a medium that they don't know squat about, right? So, I mean, the dichotomy in Hollywood is really interesting because you have the talent and it has to mix with the business. And the business people have no idea really and truly what makes a good film. And the audience who judges it has no authority to do so. And so you kind of have the, but you need everybody to make it work, right? Or else there would be no money to make any movies. And so I think, I remember when I was in acting class, in, in uh, a real acting class that really taught me how to act because there is a whole world of scams out there. But uh, the real acting class in John Kirby's class, he taught me how to act. And I remember I would go through scenes and it was really demanding. We would get these these plays and we would have to do 10, pa 10 pages of dialogue in these plays. We'd get it on, say, a Thursday and by Tuesday or Wednesday we'd have to put it up on stage and we couldn't use our, we couldn't use uh, our script. We had to be completely what's called off book, memorize all the lines and do it. And if we, you know, we dropped a line, we didn't let anybody know. We just went forward. And there were so many actors who wouldn't want to go up the first week because they weren't ready. And I would tell them, look, you cannot succeed until you fail. And the hardest part of being an actor is making a really strong choice about how you feel about the character and putting it out there for the world to see. And I think it's the same way with a podcast where you, if anybody, if you have a hard time with critics or if you have a hard time with, you know, feeling like somebody's giving you, giving you shit about doing whatever it is that you're doing, it's just noise. And you got to recognize if you're doing it for yourself or you're doing it for them. And I, and I think that's also something that plays into the you're only as good as your last part. And it's like, who, who cares what they said? If you want to be an actor or you, or, or, or you want to be a or you want to host a podcast, are you doing it because you want to talk to interesting people and hear interesting stories and, and, and really relate to the human connection, um, you know, and this human interaction, which I think is also what makes a great movie. Are you doing it for that aspect? Or are you doing it to be successful? Because it's, it's a weird industry where, uh, you know, I heard this quote from somebody who said, don't confuse efforts with results. Mm -hmm. And that's great. But in acting, you could, some of the best talent will, you'll never, ever see because they have such a hard time with the auditioning process and with the interview process because it's extremely difficult. It's extremely uncreative. You know, take for instance, you're sitting in, you, you get, take for instance, you get, um, most of the time you get an audition the day before, right? Sometimes a day of, sometimes a few days if you're lucky, right? But you got so many other things going on with your day job and everything else that you're doing in your class and your everything else, right? And so, and, and you got to remember those lines. But so most of the time you get it less than 24 hours before. And there may be two or three lines because it's a bit part in a TV show. And so what you do is you go in and you sit in this waiting room. And a lot of times, say your auditions at 1230, 
well, you're not the only one auditioning at 1230. There's about seven other people that look just like you, <laughs> except, except better. They're prettier. They're stronger. They're whatever. You get to stare down right? your, your competition. Holy shit. Oh, hell yeah. And you're all, and then you go in and you sit down in this waiting room and you realize how extremely unoriginal you are because you all have the same leather jacket and you all have the same aviators, <laughs> right? And you all have the same exact style boots on. And you're like, well, shit, shit. How am I going to, how am I going to stand out next to these guys? And then what you also don't know is, some, you know, you look around the room and some of the guys you recognize, some of the guys you're like, oh, shit, I remember you from that movie, you know, and you're thinking that in your head. And you're like, Jesus, I've only done one TV show in the last four years. And this guy was in that big film that I loved that I watched yeah. <laughs> when I was, a, you know, when I was in high school. How the hell am I going to do that? And why are we auditioning for the same part? That seems unfair. And so you go through all that and you're sitting in the waiting room and the door is, is paper thin. Right. So you're hearing everybody's performance as you're sitting. Oh, there my waiting. gosh. I didn't even think about that. And then, and you're like, well, shit, that was pretty good. Or you're like, shit, that was terrible. That guy's not getting it at all. And so you, you're like, well, okay, nobody's, nobody's going to do it quite like me because I'm me and, and I'm different. And so you go in there and sometimes there's one person reading the lines, operating the camera and doing everything. And sometimes there's like three or four people on their cell phones, not really giving a rat's ass that you're there waiting for somebody to wake them up. Right. And so it's just this bare room and sometimes they use it for storage and there's this little dinky camera and they got a piece of blue tape on the carpet and you go and you just, you get to the point where you hit on your mark. And sometimes you're like, Hey, um, do you guys need a headshot? And sometimes they'll berate you because this is the 21st century and everything's electronic. And other times they're like, Oh my gosh, thank you so much. Nobody brings those anymore. And so, <laughs> so then you, then they ask you, and you're like, do you have any questions? And you're always like, you don't want to ask questions because that means you didn't do your homework. So you're like, nope, let's just jump right into it. And so then you do it. And in the middle of it, you got to make real-time decisions because sometimes you get these casting directors who used to be actors and still want to be actors. And they try to act in the scene, right? And, and a lot of times it could be a woman reading the part of some tough guy sheriff or some tough prison inmate. Right. Or, or like I, do, I go out for a lot of military and cop roles. So sometimes there's just like really hard nosed lieutenant who's giving me orders or whatever. And I've got this little petite casting assistant <laughs> reading. Lines, and I'm supposed to be like, you know, yes, sir. But I'm looking at her and I'm I'm saying, yes, sir, we can get that done. And you're thinking to yourself, well, should I improvise? Should I say yes, ma'am? And show her how good how good of an actor I am because she's a girl. And, and then they're like, you're like, no, Brett, just shut up. Just say the lines as they're written. Oh, man. And, and then, you, and then you, you, you leave. And on the way home, you get stuck in traffic and you second guess everything that you did because you're like, shit, you know, I should have said the line like this, or I should have done this, or maybe I should have pointed the gun over there because it looked better for camera. Right. And there's all these things that go into your head and you just, it's, it's mind boggling. And you never hear if you don't get the part, you never hear, they don't say, Hey, thanks. We went with another route. You don't know if you got it because you were, you didn't get it because you were terrible. You don't know if you didn't get it because you were too short, too tall, uh, not handsome enough, not uh, maybe too handsome. You made the, you, you make the star, you know, not look as handsome as he should. 
You know, there's all these facts. You have blonde hair. There are, there's too many people that have blonde hair. We need a guy with brown hair. There's so many factors that, that factor in why you didn't get the part. It doesn't matter. You, you can't think about it. You can't think about the noise because it doesn't matter. It, it, it could not be because it could not be because you're not the best actor. It, it, it most likely has nothing to do with talent. So a lot of times with the small parts, they got to fill a quota, you know? Wow. Well, it sounds a lot like my dating life. I usually leave after the first date. Yeah, I wonder if I'm going to get called back from that one. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. So um, I've, I've learned through this deal. I mean, it, the criticism, I, I thought I had this thick skin um, through the, the podcast has brought um, definitely a uh, new, new lesson for me to learn. I have learned also that the loudest boos usually come from the, the cheapest seats. So, um, I've dealt well with that, and I, I stopped reading the, the comments and all that. Um, I did read one where one guy said, uh, said uh, cardigan cowboy, more like lipstick cowboy, this poser. So I did, I did give in. I wrote back, and I said, man, I apologize. I meant to wipe your mom's lipstick off before I shot that, and uh, it was the one time I gave in. But um, for the most part, I uh, yeah, just stopped reading that stuff and, and just – just moving right ahead and, and then kind of just learning um, how to navigate through that, navigate through failure. And I can so relate to your, your, your car ride home, uh, sitting in traffic, because every time I put out an episode so far, I sit there and go, nobody's going to want to listen to that. Nobody's going to, and then, and then it feels good to get some reassurance after it's put out. And usually I have somebody like my mom call me, right. tell me it was great. <laughs> so, well, yeah, right. But that's, that's the, that's the beauty of it too, is because some of the best pieces of film, literature, speeches, whatever. I mean, you could watch somebody give a graduation speech on YouTube and you're in tears and you're like, man, that was the best goddamn thing I've ever seen. And then you go to the comments and somebody, you know, was like, wah, 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 that was terrible. Right. And my philosophy on that is if you only get good comments, you're not reaching enough people. Mm, Yeah. So true. I was thinking that about with the first film that I did and I put it out there and I didn't like it when I, I, I wrote and produced this film and we ended up having JK Simmons in it. And he went on to win the Oscar shortly after that. And, and it was about two brothers who were team ropers. And, and I put it out there and I really just, I wasn't ready. And I, and I, and I could see it. I was like, I, I put everything I had into this and, and, and it didn't come out like I hoped. And that happens all the time. But then it started to reach a bunch of people and a lot of people really liked it. And then we started getting some bad comments and I'm like, well now, okay, now we're starting to reach enough people to where I feel like that, you know, we, we did what we set out to do. And that was to entertain some people along the way. That's great. Was that the healer? Is that what you're talking about? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Um, and JK, JK Simmons, uh, he got, he won some awards for whiplash. Is that right? So he won the Oscar for wow. Whiplash, and I remember, and I remember he met us at a, at a he met us at a little uh, cafe in Studio City called Aroma, and everybody goes bonkers over this place if you live in the Valley, and it's this little uh, little coffee and tea shop, uh, and they serve breakfast. I don't even know, basically they serve all kinds of food, but it's basically just coffee and and, and little bites, and and you sit in this outdoor patio that's like this back secret garden 
And, and JK wanted to meet us there. And I remember, you know, every, there's street parking everywhere. You have to park on the street and you have to find a spot. And of course, JK walks in the back door. He's like, you know, there's two spaces behind this place that nobody knows about. <laughs> there's two parking spaces. You can just park there. And I'm like, well, I do now. And that was the first thing that he said when he sat down and everybody's looking at him because they knew him at the time as that guy who's been in all those things, yeah. but we don't know his name. And then I remember he looked, he looked, uh, he looked me and my, my writing buddy at the time in the eyes. And he was like, he's like, you know, I, 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 I like you two kids. And I feel like there's certain things in my position where I should donate my time to, and I'd love to be a part of this. And he, and he was like, we'll be in touch. And he, and he got up and left cause he had something else to do. He did. I don't even know if he had coffee or anything. And I, and he left and And I was just, we were sitting there and we're like, what the hell just happened? And, and the director was like, you guys just got a world-class character actor to be in your short film. And I was like, yeah, that just happened. And so we shot the, we shot the thing and um, we got the film ready to deliver it to him. And he met us at a, at a burger joint called the counter. I mean, JK was wonderful. This guy was one of the busiest people and he would always make time to sit down and sh just bullshit with us for lunch. How cool. And, and so we're handing him the, the film and we're really excited about it. And he had lost about 20 pounds. And, and uh, he's like, man, I'm, he's like, guys, I'm really jacked up about this, this film I'm doing. And we're like, well, what's it about? And he said, well, it's this music film and it's, I play this jazz teacher, but he's really like a drill instructor. And I'm looking at him and I'm thinking to myself, this sounds like a really boring movie. This sounds like a terrible movie. And then Whiplash came out and I was blown away. It was an amazing movie. He was great for the part and he won the Oscar. And I'm just like, there you go. You can't judge a book by its, you can't judge a script by its tagline or a book by its cover. Uh, it was just so cool. Yeah. And, and Miles, is it Miles Teller? who plays the drummer right. and, and JK is the instructor. He's the one and he is, man, he's mean. I mean, he's absolutely mean in that, um, in that movie. Oh, he's great. That's crazy. I had a chance. It's funny that the connection with miles Teller, I was, uh, I had auditioned for this show called too old to die young. And it's a really long series on Amazon prime. And it's directed, it's written and directed by the guy who did, did you ever see that movie called Drive with Ryan Gosling? It's, oh man, dude. It, it's not, I'm not making this up. It's probably, it's in my top five favorite movies in my life. I, I like, I want Ryan Gosling's swagger in that movie. That he is so not yeah. me. <laughs> like just that laid back, look at somebody, don't even have to say nothing. And the girl's just, ooh. And yeah, I don't have that. And he make, he makes it look so easy in that movie. Amazing movie. Sorry to interrupt there, but that it's so funny because no, I've watched that no. movie ten times, and I I just want to embody that. In fact, I was such a fan. I went and bought the exact Henley that he wears in that movie. Uh, I find out it's a Russian company that makes that Henley, and I bought like three of them. And uh, I yeah, seriously, <laughs> I love that movie. So yeah. Well, the uh, coincidentally enough, after that came out, my wife was living in. Uh, my wife was living, she was, uh, we, she was my girlfriend at the time and, and she was living in the Hollywood Hills and her roommate, she had two roommates and one worked at Paramount and the other was a guy who lived in like the downstairs apartment guest house deal. And he comes out, we, we're having this Halloween party 
they were having this Halloween party. I was invited I, I, just because of Allison. And um, <laughs> and he comes out dressed as Ryan Gosling. And has dies. the scorpion jacket. Has a scorpion jacket. And we're like, man, that, like, where'd you get that jacket? And he's like, it's the jacket. No way. <laughs> yeah. Because he, he used to be uh, Guillermo del Toro's guy, uh, his assistant. And he had ended up uh, consulting or working on Drive. And he's like, yeah, this is the jacket. They let me borrow it. Oh, for the this. soundtrack to that oh. movie is unbelievable. And, and uh, I'm just fanning out right now because I, I love that movie and nobody else likes it. I've actually shown it to people and they're like, this is horrible. And I'm like, no, nah, dude, this is where it's at. It's a, it's a good, it's a good movie. That's for sure. Man, um, to, yeah. What, um, have you ever met anybody else that in like JK Simmons or that, have you ever met anybody that everybody would know that lived up? to your expectation that was like wow this guy this guy or gal is just as awesome as i anticipate because i have got to meet some famous people and uh sometimes they i mean they're human and sometimes they're just not as cool as you thought and then sometimes you meet somebody and they are just like wow you are everything i ever thought you would be you're even more kind uh than i thought i would think jk simmons was awesome i think there have been more that I have been underwhelmed by in person than I have been, you know, mm-hmm. awestruck. I think one of the people that is to the T exactly who you think he is, you know, what you see on screen would be Eastwood. Clint no, Eastwood. You've I mean, met he's, him? Oh, I worked, I worked for him on American Sniper for about three weeks. It was the coolest it was surreal. It was the, it was the coolest three weeks of my life. I mean, I spent three weeks on the Mexican border with him and Bradley Cooper, you know, only obviously only the times that we were working, but it, um, you know, we're right there in, in El Centro, Mexicali and just in the middle of nowhere. And it was, um, it was, it was cool, man. He was all, he was all time. It's, I got a, <laughs> I got a really funny story about, working on American sniper. Um, so, I mean, Clint Eastwood was great. The, the whole production was awesome. And I, I remember, so I had auditioned initially for this, the, the role of a guy at, at a gate at a security gate when this Mercedes pulls up and he's worried that the guy's got an IED in there. And so he starts lighting the truck up, starts lighting the Mercedes up and tells the guy to get out of the car and get on the ground the guy goes around to the trunk and opens it up and it's, and it's one of the character's bodies in the trunk that he had, you know, assassinated. And so I, I really, I really thought I just did great in the audition and I didn't hear anything for a month and a half. And I'm checking the trades every day and I'm like, God, did somebody get cast? And, you know, I'm checking IMDb every day to see if somebody got added to that role and about a month and a half later, I get a call on a Tuesday. He says, can you be on set? Uh, can you be at a fitting tomorrow and on set on Thursday? Uh, Clint loved your tape. He, he just got back from Morocco and he reviewed it. And I'm like, this is weird, right? Calling him Clint. He loved my tape. This is, and, and, I'm, and I'm thinking, what's the part for? And they're like, well, it's not for the part that you auditioned for. It's for a part that's down near the Mexican border and it shoots for three weeks. And the part that I had auditioned for was only a one day gig. And it ended up getting cut from the film. Oh, you got and upgraded. So, 
I got upgraded and, and I had less lines, but I got to work longer and be around them longer. And so my part was I'm on the rooftop, you know, helping Bradley Cooper, uh, helping Chris, uh, Bradley Cooper's character, Chris Kyle out, uh, on, on one of the last opera on the last operation on the rooftop when all hell breaks loose and this st- sandstorm comes in. And so we start shooting this scene on the rooftop and we're firing off, you know, real blanks. And the, you know, it was funny because we were there for about a week and a half before we started shooting any guns. And then the second we start shooting guns, they had to rope off a two block. The, the police had to come in and rope off, rope off a two block perimeter because it, everybody just left their jobs and wanted to watch the filming because they knew that Eastwood and Bradley Cooper yeah. were in town. And so then we're, you know, I'm sitting on this rooftop and there's all these, there's all these people around just taking photos and YouTube videos and, and whatever. And so once we start shooting, we, you know, films don't shoot in uh, chronological order. They shoot in whatever works best for economically and fiscally for the budget. Right. So you may shoot. Uh, we started shooting some of the last scenes first because that's just the way it worked out. Get the big stuff out of the way. And so I was shooting. I, I, we did this scene where we got to get off the roof and and um you know take the pole all like down three stories and um so eastwood's so tough man he's like you know we have he's like we got stunt doubles for you guys if if any of you actors want to bow out and uh you know do if you guys don't want to do the stunt and so he's looking right at us right he's standing right in front of us i'm like i'm doing the stunt i'm doing the stunt and my my, I'm telling myself, my sniping partner is like, no, man, we just got here. What happens if you fall off, you get hurt, they're going to cut you out of the movie. I'm like, I don't give a shit. That's a challenge, right? That's that's old school that's tough right. guy right there saying, you know, these newbies are soft. And so I'm like, I'm doing it. And so we did this whole sequence where we, I, I got to back off the roof and, it, and it's me and Bradley left and I'm shooting my rifle <laughs> and, and then he taps me on the shoulder and I'm like, okay, I'm going. And so then I jumped down and I realized that the, the pole that we, they had built a platform, like a half a story beneath the, um, they had built a wooden platform, like a half a story beneath the rooftop. And so you actually didn't have to pole vault or, um, you know, fast rope three stories down. You actually just kind of hopped down. And that was the end of it. So like, that's, I was like, that's really underwhelming, but whatever. Now, at least he doesn't hey, think I'm, you know, some pre- said, no, I'll let that stunt double do it. Been like, oh, you just let some dude <laughs> just take a little right. leap. How, how many feet was it? Like four or five feet jump down? Oh, shit. Yeah, it wasn't but six <laughs> feet. It wasn't, it wasn't even feet or anything. And then we're, and then we, it, it was actually worse because then we, the platform's so small that all six of us are there hugging each other so we don't fall off on our ass and that we're all out of the picture. You know, as the camera stays on yeah. the rooftop. But so I, I knew that it, based on the script, I knew that I was out of ammo by that point in the script. Cause I had this thing that says I'm out of ammo. We got to go or whatever. And so I shot it. Um, so I, so I shot my rifle anyway. Cause I'm like, you know, then I might get more lines. And so I had, you know, I had so much time to sit and think about it. And so a few days go by and, uh, Eastwood's going around and, and we're doing the single shots of, of all the military guys on the rooftop and the firefights and getting, you know, shots of them shooting and all that stuff and talking. And so he comes up to me and he's like, Edwards, uh, what's your line? 
and he, he turned, he turned 84 on the set. Right. And it's a hundred and some odd degrees out there and we're on the rooftop and he's just plugging away. Like it's no problem. He's moving around with everybody on his feet all day. It was amazing to watch. And, and so I said, Oh yes, sir. So everybody called him boss. And so I'm like, yes, boss, you know, um, my line is I'm out of ammo. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay. That's real good. <laughs> and so I said, and I said, but wait a second, wait a second, boss. Um, I already, there's that later scene where I was actually shooting my rifle. And so I'm, uh, you know, I'm clearly won't be out of ammo. He's like, okay. So he calls over master Sergeant Deaver, who was the military technical advisor. The guy spent like 35 years in the Marine Corps. Right. And so he's this New Yorker and he's like, you know, and so Clint, Clint's like, what's he say? And, and, and Deaver's like, say, I'm down to two mags, two mags. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I'm down to two mags and, and, um, uh, and, Clint goes, yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, let's shoot it. And so I go, okay. And so I started shooting. And, and, and so I get down in my position and the the armorer leans in my ear and he goes, hey, that DP, the director of photography, the camera, camera guy, he's going to slide up on a slider and those lenses are going to be right in your face and they're going to be like 100, they're $125,000 lenses. So whatever you do, shoot all of your rounds before he slides up to you because I don't want to break the thing. And I said, okay, yeah, 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 you got it. Like this is my first close up with Eastwood. And so I'm like, yeah, yeah, I don't wanna I don't wanna mess this up oh, either. You got it. and so Clint's sitting in his chair, he's probably like ten feet away. And and he's like, Okay, go. You know, he doesn't say action, he just says go, or he doesn't say anything. You're just supposed to do it. And so I sit there and I go <laughs> Uh, and and I yelled, I yelled, get some motherfuckers. And I start shooting my rifle is, you know, as fast as I could. And then the thing slid up and my sniper guy shoots the shot. And then I go through the line. And I'm like, I'm like, D I'm down to two mags. We got to move. And I'm, and I'm saying all these lines and I'm shooting and I'm, and I'm, and I'm messing around. And, and, <laughs> and he goes, cut, cut, cut. And he stands up from his chair and I'm like, son of a bitch, because I heard all of these stories about how he only gives people three mm-hmm. takes and, and he moves on. He doesn't waste any time. And so I'm like, shit, there's one of my takes. I, I done screwed it up already. And so he, he gets up and he goes, uh, he goes, I didn't see you shooting any of the, at all during the thing. And the camera guy, the DP stands up and he goes, yeah, I, we didn't see you shooting anything. And I said, well, the, the, the guy, I can't remember his name. Cause on, you know, you meet so many uh-huh. people on a, on a set immediately the guy uh he told me to shoot all my rounds because i didn't want to break the lens and 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 the the dp leans in real close and he goes i don't give a shit about the lens we got like five of these things i want to see you shooting and eastwood goes and eastwood goes and i go yes sir you got it And, and eastwood comes up and he pulls me aside and he goes edwards i say yes yes and he goes that ad lib and shit you're doing I love it. Say whatever you want. And I said, oh my gosh. okay. I said, okay, great. And, and, you know, because that's another one of the things about hard part about being an actor, right? You put yourself out there and you're like, I, you know, I've been on other movies where the director's like, yeah, that line, that, that, that ain't working for me. So let's do something else, you know, in front yeah, of everybody. Yeah. And make, you, know, you just wasted so much money. And so, um, and, and so I was like, oh yes, great. Yes, sir. You got it. And he goes, but now listen, that uh, we got to do something about this recoil. And I said, what, 
yes, sir. You know, cause we're firing blanks out of these. M- I had an M16 and we're firing blanks and, and he goes, uh, you know, um, you got to simulate the recoil. Um, don't let it look like a limp dick in your hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look like, it's going to look like a rocket on this next take. You bet. You bet you. And he goes, okay, good. And he sits down in his director's chair and I'm sitting there trying to figure out how I can make this recoil work and look, look authentic. authentic yeah, be really tough. And so I'm sitting there trying to work and he's like, that's it. And he aims a finger. He points his finger gun at me like the dirty hairy. Uh, I kid you not. And he's like, and he goes, that's it kid. Just like that. Okay, let's shoot it. And I was like, Oh my gosh. We did the we did the scene another two times, and when they moved, they they had to move the camera. Him and I sat, Clint and I sat on a on a radiator. After that, on the rooftop in a hundred degree heat, and he was like, "You you do all right in this town." That was that was some good stuff, and uh, I was like, "Thank you, thank you so much for being you know let me be a part of this." And, and we just sat there, kind of in silence for a little bit, and then they were like, "Boss, we gotta go." He's like, "Well." duty calls and he got up and ran to the other side of the of the rooftop and you know while we're talking these there were helicopters flying over there was explosions going off there were uh extra iraqis on another building shooting blanks at us all this pandemonium's going on and, and we just had this just this moment on the top of the rooftop i'll never forget it and um you know it was it was so cool i remember i got to I remember I got to, it came out at the end of 2014, right around Christmas time. And I remember I got to tell my old man, I was like, yeah, he was really sick at the time. And, um, and I was like, look, pop, I'm going to be in a, I'm going to be in a Clint Eastwood film. And you get to go see that on the big screen. And the film was really good. And it was a war picture. And he, I'll be damned. He made it out there. He, it was like four months before he died. Oh. He made it out there and um, saw it, saw it on the big screen, and it, it was it was so cool. So cool. And it was Clint Eastwood. Yeah. Oh man, that is so cool. And and um, tell me a little bit about your dad. Like what what happened and, and um, what what was the end there for him? Was he sick? Yeah. So my dad, he had been in and out of the hospital for as long as I remember. He, he was born in 1935, right after the depression in San Francisco. And, um, by age 13 or 14, he was running cows in Texas as a cowboy. And he ended up, like I said a little bit earlier, he ended up selling Jägermeister for a living and he parlayed that into a Grey Goose vodka. But he came from a time where they lived harder and they, they lived hard and they played harder. And he smoked, he smoked about two packs a day, guzzled, you know, countless gallons of booze. And that's where I think I got it from, you know, because you see it, you don't realize what it does to you growing up. Uh, you, you know, happy times, good times, regular times, pour me a drink, do this. It, yeah. Everybody's yeah. drinking cheers and you don't realize the kind of effect that has on you as a, as a kid. You're, you're not realizing what you're seeing. And then you grow up and you become a man and you think, well, that's just what I'm supposed to do. Um, but so, I mean, he had triple bypass on his heart in 89, uh, uh, a quadruple bypass in 99 in 2013, he was in the hospital for about two months because he had cardiac arrest and heart failure and a staph infection and collapsed lung. And then in 2015, 
um, in 2015, I got a call, you know, it was shortly after the American sniper thing and he, he wasn't doing good, but shortly after it aired, it was, I think it was February. And, uh, you know, he just sounded really gruff on the phone and I hadn't talked to him in a while. And I think like most men, you had your ups and yeah, I had my ups and downs with my mm-hmm. old man. And, um, he, he just sounded awful on the phone. He was like, Brett, um, I've got stage four lung cancer and the doc gave me six weeks and I'd love to see you. I said, uh, and I'm thinking to myself, bullshit. Nothing can kill you. I've seen it. I've seen you in the hospital in 2013. You were on the ventilator for two weeks. All the doctors said you were going to die and you came out and you walked out of the hospital. Like nothing can kill you. And, uh, I, I didn't go see him. I didn't go. My wife's like, you've got to get back there. And I said, no. And he's, he's going to be fine. I'll go back when I can see him. And a month went by and finally I gave in and, and I went back and I stayed with him the last two weeks before we, um, before I stayed with him the last two weeks and he died two days after I left. And I spent just about every day with him. Those, you know, I spent all day, every day with him those two weeks. And man, we watched, <laughs> we watched Butch Cassidy and the Sundance kid like 15 times and you know every day it was on turner classic movies and we just we would we kept messing around and we just kept you know doing lines back and forth about you know he's like well hold on we got to get the rules straight and he's like rules in a night fight <laughs> somebody yell one two three go and he yells and redford yells one two three go and newman kicks him in the nuts you know <laughs> that's <laughs> awesome and so I remember, and then we sat there together, and and um, and and he said he looked at me, and he was all doped up on morphine, and he said, he said, look, I, you know, I don't, I don't know much about what you're doing out there, son, but whatever you do, don't quit until you get one of those gold bastards with no pants. <laughs> and I said. <laughs> What? And he goes, you know, that that shit they give everyone out there for, you know, where they pat each other on the back and give them an award. It's a little gold bastard with no pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, I said, yes, sir. I said, I'll I'll do my best. You 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 bet your ass and, and <laughs> I'll never Oh, that's that. so cool. And it's it's such a cool feeling. I I'm very blessed to have a great dad and I love uh it doesn't matter how many times he's says he's proud of me and gives me encouragement. I love it every time. So I know what that feels like. Yeah, of course. I think, I think encouragement among young men and, and, and girls, I think encouragement among our youth in this country is on a steep decline. And I think it's harmed. I think it's harmed us pretty significantly. You know, it, it takes so little encouragement for people to do so much good. But they have to, they just have to hear it. It's innate in human nature. Yeah. You know, and um, we need more of well, it. Well, I tell you, you're showing it just through this. I think the people, my listeners should know that, that your publicist found me and, and let me know about you and the book that you wrote. And um, I'm just like, I can't tell you how much it meant that you guys not only sent me a book, but you actually took the time and wrote me a letter. And uh, it was very encouraging. And it, it was it was much needed. It was in a time where 
Um, I, I kind of questioned what the hell I, not only what I was doing with this podcast, but what I was even my purpose in life and everything was. And so your letter meant more than you'll ever know. And, um, it, I don't know, it, it was just perfect. And I, I cherish it. I'm going to frame it. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. It's right across the room, but, um, I just really appreciate you taking the time. And while we're talking about that, man, we need to talk about this book that you've wrote and I love it. It's called sacred land, sacred land. Am I correct? Yeah, Sacred Land. That's it was right. an easy read, and uh, if you want, I would like you to kind of start off and just say, you know, what what you want to say about it, because I I don't want to spill the beans or say anything um, too much about it to give it away. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I would just say that it's it's basically a story where descendants of Custer and Crazy Horse battle for land in this modern day reimagining of the battle at Little Bighorn. Um, I've it's basically a story where it's a modern day Cowboys versus Indians where the casinos are rich from gaming, uh, where the Indians are rich from casinos and gaming and the, and the Cowboys are poor from cattle ranching and the Indians are buying up all their land and, um, all the land that was once taken from them and putting it in trust and, and trying to annex it back to the reservations. And, the, and a lot of the cattle ranchers are, are selling because they don't have kids that want to be a part of the ranch or work the hard sun up to sundown job and all the responsibility that comes with that. And then, you know, it's the, the Indians are paying a really great price because they have so much money. And so I, what happened and how I came across the story is uh, because my wife's work, she works, um, she, she worked for a private equity firm for a little bit uh, for quite a while. And, in the, in the summers, her boss owned a, a ranch uh, up in one of the valleys in central California. And so in the summers, we would go up there and she was the, you know, it's kind of funny. Like I'm the, I'm the dramatist and she's the ranch manager. Uh, and um, it's, you know, and so she would, she would go up and manage the ranch and we would stay there. And, um, you know, I was getting a lot of writing done. We're in the middle of nowhere. There's not very much reception. And, um, so my, uh, wife's boss, he, he, one day he came up and he's like, what are you doing up here? And, and I said, well, I just, I'm, I love it. I'm getting a lot of riding done. I'm spending a lot of time outside. He's like, do you ride horses? And I said, I love riding horses, but I'm not, you know, I'm no cowboy. I'm not that great at it. And so, um, he said, you want to be? And I said, sure. And he said, okay, well, I'll tell a guy start riding every day. And he had, they ran a polo operation oh, wow. up there. So yeah. in the summers, they had about 70 to 100 horses on the ranch. And big, you know, big thoroughbreds that could just run like the wind. And so the the grooms, they're called grooms. Uh, a lot of them are Argentine. They threw me in, the, in this English saddle. And, and uh, they're like, all right, start running sets with us. And sets are what happens, you know, the first day on the job, I started um, – we had to go out to the pasture and, and catch all the turned out ponies. And I had no idea what I was doing, but they're like, you got to get, you got to get uh, five or six of them on the halter and we're going to take them back. And then soon we'll start walking them around the track and, and getting them in shape. And so when you do sets, you, you saddle one and every other horse is, and, and you put the bit in one and, and every other horse is on a halter. And they, they do this little intricate weave where you have, 
the horse you're on, you have two to your left and you have three horses to your right. So you got six horses and you gallop, you get to a point where you gallop around the track with them for an hour straight. And so managing all these mares that had just come from being turned out for six months and trying to whip them back in shape and getting them to, uh, you know, work as a unit is, Oh my gosh, I was in for the ride of my life, man. They put me in this English saddle. I got no saddle horn to hold on to, you know? And so I, they, they do the halters for me and I, and I get up in the saddle and we didn't even make it. A, I didn't even make it a half a lap around the track before these, before, um, one of the mares tried to tried to bite the other one. My horse Buck tried to throw it threw me around its neck, and all the other horses start bucking and kicking and taking off running. And this and I'm hanging around this horse's <laughs> neck, and the groom looks at me in, in Spanish, and he says in Spanish basically to the effect of uh, "Go fetch, cowboy," you know, like "Go fetch, vaquero." And so I'm like, <laughs> and so these horses are running around this this you know where where the track was was this really open pasture they used it for for parking for all the big polo yeah. matches and so i'm trying to catch and, I, and i'm not confident in my riding enough to to take this horse and go round up all these other mares and so i you know so i get down off the horse's neck and i and i walk and i it took me it took me over almost two hours to catch all these things and these grooms are sitting here laughing their ass off and of course, by the end of the first summer, I started running sets. And so what happened was, is I started getting really involved in this community. And, uh, and one of the guys, one of the guys at, at the, who owns the ranch, he, um, he used to run a movie studio. And so he said, man, uh, I, he came up to me one day and he said, I had no idea you were a writer. And I said, well, how'd you know? And he, he said, he knew I did a little bit of acting and cause you know, I didn't really tell anybody about it up there. And, um, he said, uh, well, how'd you, I, I didn't know you were a writer. I said, how'd you see it? And he said, well, how'd you know? And he said, well, I saw a play that you did. I, I saw it in a film festival and I loved it. Have you written anything else? And I said, yes. And he goes, can you send it to me? So I sent him a few things and he didn't like it at all. I liked it, but it just wasn't a fit for the, the slate of films that they yeah. wanted to put out. And so he said, look, I've got this idea of, and, and I've been thinking about this for a long time. And it's happening in this town where the polo operation was. And he said, he said, you know, it's this modern day cowboys versus Indians. And he kind of pitched me basically the, the blurb of the book that I just told you. And uh, he said, would you have any interest in coming into the studio and, and, you know, giving a pitch to the producers about, you know, your take on it? I said, yeah, yeah. You know, give me a week. And, and, uh, and so he said, okay. And so I came in and, and, and this week I'm sitting there pondering and I wrote the first 10 pages of the script. And it basically, it, it deals with how the book opens where, you know, you got the patriarch of the family, Pappy Custer, and he's talking to a, a real estate and a family estate attorney and a tax attorney about his land. And it's very kind of vague and you don't really know, you, you kind of have an understanding of what he's talking about, but you don't really know. And meanwhile, out in the pasture, you got Cody Custer, the grandson uh, in, the, in the heir to this flying sea cattle ranch, rounding up 300 head of cattle with his segundo, Manuel Rodriguez. And he finds this, uh, he finds this calf with her, with the, her entrails mm -hmm. hanging out and, 
just bloody and everywhere and laying in the snow and wheezing and whining. And so Cody dismounts as you're finding her kind of secluded from the rest of the herd and goes to pick her up. And this wolf starts, he, he feels like something's off and this wolf starts charging him and he looks up and he turns around and he draws this Colt 1911 and he puts three into the wolf and drags it back to drags it all the way back to the corral on a lariat. And so I tell them that that's my pitch. And they all look at me and there's just this dead silence. And they're like, and then what happens? And I'm like, Give well, me I don't know. Week. That's, that's all I got. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, that's all I got. And they're like, well, what, what, give us the rest of the plot. And I'm like, look, I know that there's something here, but I don't, I don't that's not how I write. I got to get my characters talking. And once they talk, I don't, I don't do the whole thing where it's like by, and, and that's one of the big things that Hollywood's about because they have a formula that works, right? By page 10, this has to happen. By page 25, this has to happen. By page 60, everything gets turned upside down. By page 80, there's no way the hero is going to achieve what he wants. It's impossible. And then by page 95, an act of God comes in or somebody else in the film comes in and saves the day and the hero gets to whatever he wants, right? They've got yeah. this formula that they believe works. And, uh, and I don't do that. I just, once these characters start talking, they, they drive the story themselves. It's really, it's really just an incredible way that I, I just love because then I don't know what's going to happen. These, these characters take me on a ride. And um, so anyway, we spent two years in development on this, on the show. And this was, you got to understand, this was before Yellowstone came out. This was back in 2016, in 2017 and the first season of Yellowstone was in June of 2018. Now, obviously that's not taking anything away from Taylor Sheridan. I mean, we were just creating similar content at the same time, but he was already well-established by that point. He had written Sicario, Hell or High Water, Wind River, you know, been nominated for Oscars. He was on, he was man, already. Wind River well. was good. Shoot, man. That, oh, whew, yeah. That's a good one. That's a good flick. And, and I love his stuff. And I love Yellowstone. I think it's the only show that my wife and I watch w the week it comes out um, on TV each episode. And uh, so we spent two years in development. I, we get the green light and we're casting. And, um, ha you know, shortly in the casting, the executives call me in and say, uh, we're getting acquired by a new studio and they're not going to move forward with your content. And you could see the look on a lot of the executives' faces because they weren't, they weren't going to the new company, right? They were just selling and getting out. And so there, you know, the one guy that brought me in, uh, who his name's TJ Barrick. He, he's one of my best buddies today. He, um, he, um, <clears throat> he, uh, he was, he was like, I'm going to give you the rights back so you can take it to another studio. And I said, that's great. And, um, and so I, I was at a party short. I don't know if it was a party. I guess it was more like a dinner shortly after that. And with a, a producer from a film I worked on called The Longest Ride. And producer and I are bullshitting. And he said, you know, what have you been up to? And so I told him about this project, Sacred Land. And he looked me in the face and he said, Brett, that's a film I'd love to see, but it's too unpolitically correct for me to make. It sounds like it's too unpolitically correct for me to make. And I, and I wanted to be like, just read it, you know, just why don't you, instead of 
saying that. Why don't you just read it? Why don't you just give it a shot? Yeah, that's odd that you say that because after reading it, I because um, you know I'm I'm in the pipeline oil industry, and in the very first pages, I was like, I was already kind of gritting my teeth, like this is going to be tough because it talked about um, it talked about the pipeline a little bit, and and then I was amazed how unbiased you were. Like you just used them as props, almost. You 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 just did facts. Right. Like there are two sides to this, and and but you never swayed. Like, um, like at the end, I, I didn't see a picture of like a polar bear dying because of the pipeline. <laughs> so, uh, I, I loved it. Like no. I loved the book genuinely because you just, you just really shown the battle that there is at the pipeline, not whether it's good or bad or ugly or necessary or not, or he didn't dive into that. So for him to say that's kind of odd. Right. But that's of people in the industry they judge a lot of things by their cover everybody's too busy to read anything i can't tell you how many agents i've had who i've reached out to about um scripts that i've written and they're like well give me the elevator pitch and so i give them the elevator pitch and they're like oh nobody makes westerns anymore oh nobody makes legal thrillers anymore that's ridiculous and i'm like we well, haven't even read it and they're like nobody reads anything anymore if you don't sell us on the elevator pitch we don't want it and i'm like what <laughs> And, and that's how it works. That's how it works. You get people, you know, that go in and pitch Beverly Hills Chihuahua three and, and they're, they're eating at Del Frisco's later that night. So, um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate your comments about the book. That's kind of, that's the philosophy I take whenever I'm writing anything is if you, if you're honest enough about the characters and you let them do the talking, then you'll be unbiased just about every time because everybody good, bad, right, wrong. Everybody has justification for doing what they do. You know, you look at somebody as terrible as a serial killer uh, who goes around killing women and doing terrible things to them. And then you come to find out that the mother was extremely mm -hmm. abusive to the guy when he was a kid. And it's like, and it does make it right. And that's not what we're saying, but, but there, you know, there, there is a reason for why people are or do what they do. And it, it's not rocket science. And so whenever the character, I mean, that's whenever these characters start talking, man, they just, it's, uh, it's amazing. And I, I would have never thought that I would have never thought that I would have written anything. You know, I liked doing it when I was younger. Um, but I, it's, it's weird because sometimes when I write, I feel like I have to write or I'm doing something else. And I'm thinking, gosh, I just got this thing in my head that I got to get down on paper. And I do everything longhand. I have these really long, like eight and a half by 14 inch long legal pads, these yellow legal pads. And I got a stack of them on my desk and I just write everything longhand. And once I get, you know, to the end of the week, I'll type up what I wrote in the notebook. And if I like what I see, I'll move on. And just a little bit every day. And now with these two kiddos, shoot, man, trying to get a silent moment during COVID is <laughs> almost impossible during it's impossible. And so what, I, so lately I, I wake up at four o'clock in the morning because my kids, my kids go to bed six to six, you know, they're up 6am to 6pm and then they're down for the other 12 and I would get to the end of the day and I'm like, I'm exhausted from, from raising these babies and, and, you know, like trying to, trying to raise children and, and do it 
the right way and not let them, you know, not just like let them get away with anything or play or watch Netflix all day is extremely taxing. I don't know how single parents do it. <laughs> I really don't because my wife and I are, we're an incredible team, incredible team. And it's the end of the day, we're exhausted. So I was like, if I'm going to write, I've got to get up at 4 a.m. and do it for the two and a half, two hours, two and a half hours before they wake up. And so you get, it's a marathon, cool. you know, you, few pages every day you get yourself well, I, and i didn't mean to cut you off there i think you were going to that that it got shelved it got the the script got shelved and and you turned it into a book and it makes me kind of sad because i would love to see this play out because it is not a, i mean it does have some yellowstone-esque stuff in it uh but it is it takes a whole new route in the ending the ending is um one of the most surprising endings i've ever uh witnessed ever like i really enjoyed it and it hit me like uh, a sack of bricks man it was so cool yeah thank you i i do think i personally think it's different than it, it deviates from yellowstone quite a bit i think it's a lot darker i think it's a lot grittier and it's and and i really i really wanted to make uh i really wanted to make almost like just this badass gunslinger story Right. Where like, what if the gunslingers of the old West existed today and we dealt with the politics and uh, the politics of the ranching and the and, and the casino operations today? And those things clashed and people actually went to battle instead of going through legal, you know, whatever that 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 kind of stuff fascinates me, like people who mm -hmm. take action. Um, and, um, you know, we and, and I see this world that we're living in that is getting more and more passive, more and more um, soft, I guess, so to speak. And, you know, my just thinking about my dad and the way he grew up, like he grew up in some tough neighborhoods in San Francisco and nobody gave him anything. He, you know, right after the depression, nobody gave anybody anything. Like everybody had to fight tooth and nail for what they got and it made them tough and it gave them a lot of character. And now our lives are, so much better for it than they were than people had it in the 40s things are so much easier you know you, you click your phone and food shows up on your door the next day it's just or even that day two hours later you know it's just incredible how easy things have become and i it it, it frightens me drastically ever since the invention of the wheel i i kind of had this belief that the that humans are innately lazy it, it's something that's within us, and there are plenty of people that buck that, obviously. But there are so many corners that humans look to cut. And ever since the invention of the wheel, it's been just getting worse, right? We've been making things easier and easier, and you know, we're we're getting heavier and heavier and and, and lazier and lazier, and and, yeah. and, and it's and waiting. A lot of the not to interrupt you there. Sorry, I, I just. You're so right. And we've also lost perspective. We've actually lost perspective of what we come from and how hard it used to be. And I got the pleasure just recently working um, on my last project. I worked with two uh, Vietnam veterans and uh, these Vietnam vets, man, just okay. listening to stories of theirs will will give you such perspective. In fact, I hope to have some on the show and talk about that. Um, I got a funny story where I went on a date and the date I was with, uh, she was all about uh, let me know about her being a feminist and all those things, which is great. Choose your own way. 
Yeah, nice. it was an awkward date for sure. And we went to this bar, and she got a beer. She, we were looking at different beers to get, and uh, uh, she's like, well, what does that one taste like? And the bartender said, well, it's just like a, you know, like a Starbucks Frappuccino, but in a beer. And, man, she got, like, really weird, and we got back in the car, uh, and I had a little Corvette at the time, and we, we jumped in, and we nice. were driving, and she just acted weird. I said, man, are you okay? And she goes, well, it just really bugs me how that man judged me like I'm a basic blonde-headed bitch. And, and uh, I said, man, you think he was judged? Like, what made you say that? And he, she's like, well, he used Starbucks as an example. Like, I go to Starbucks. And I said, well, I was like, do you go to Starbucks? And she, he's, she's like, well, maybe, but like, he still, like, I'm offended. <laughs> she's like, I'm offended. And I said, man, you know, we live in a great world where like, you, you're going to mess a date up because you're offended over a Starbucks comment. I was like, and my grandmother, when she was your age, she was wondering if her brothers were going to come back from war. Like that was her, that was kind of like what was on her mind, right. you know, but here we are talking right. about a Starbucks. And I thought I would, I thought I'd ease this all all over by flipping a Yui like a 180 in my Corvette and I, I flipped it and I hit a curb and almost totaled my vet right there. We hit the curb. She's like, what the oh, fuck gosh. are you doing? And I'm like, I'm just trying to be cool. And uh, luckily I limped, <laughs> I limped off the curb and I limped at home. And um, yeah, yeah. And then I, I get I get her home. We get in the truck. I take her home. Obviously I didn't get a call back, but I promise you this one week later, one week, it's one week later, I get on uh, Instagram or Facebook and she was back with her ex. And I always thought I need to reach out to that man and just let him know that it was because of me and such a horrible date that we had that she went running back to the horrible relationship she had before. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. Hell man, so. yeah. She saw you and she's like, I had no <laughs> idea how good I had it. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's like my story, but you're so correct when you say like, we have gotten so soft and we let things offend us and, and we get upset and man, we oh. forget how it is to live in a world that nobody gives a rat's ass how you feel. And, um, you know, there were, right. uh, you, you sit down and you talk to some older men that, uh, one had, uh, his leg totally shot off, uh, by a, a clay mortar and, and, uh, he had to just figure out how to get through, you know, just, I mean, he's 18 years old. He came back, his sister, actually, a lot of people don't know this about Vietnam, but the, the soldiers that came back, they were actually, uh, hated. They weren't welcomed back home. And, yeah. and, uh, yeah, he got back, his sister yeah, spit in his face and he had a hard time finding a job and. And, uh, man, we come, it's, it's because of those people that we got what we have today. And it's just crazy how soft we've gotten. And that's what we hope to embody in this podcast is like bring people back. And we truly believe here that if, uh, the more cowboy we get, the better we're going to get. And, uh, we embody that if you got bucked off, get back on again, ride into the storm, handle, uh, whatever cards you're dealt, just make the most of it. And, uh, it's so cool. And, and that also brings me into, I think it's so cool that you just picked up your stuff, didn't have hardly a dime in your pocket, headed to LA and made something of yourself. Am I correct by saying that? Yeah, I was, I had, I had gone to college and I, you know, I had this, I had this terrible vendetta against higher education and the university system in general, right? Because I came out of college and I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I think some of that's on me, but I also think, Another part of that is on the education system. Not, you know, they take a shitload of money and they don't foster the whatever talent that you may possess. So they don't foster anything. You know, they'll say like, when you get out, you you've got so much shit that you have to take care of and so much shit you need to do to set yourself on the right path for success. 
right? They take their money, you get your degree. Okay, now go get a job. You try to get a job. Everybody's got a degree, but everybody's also got a master's, right? And you just, you don't. And so, um, so I worked in advertising and, I, and it was just this shit job because I was doing all the, you know, entry level stuff. And, and obviously you got to work your way up, but I found myself looking to do something else. And I, I did theater as a kid and I really enjoyed it. And, you know, it's to an extent, I guess. And, and so I found myself at my job, I was looking at apartments in Los Angeles because once I decided, Oh, I, I'm going to be an actor. It's either going to be in New York or LA. And I've already had enough cold winters going to college in Ohio. So I'm ready for palm trees and blue skies. And so if it didn't fit, it didn't ship. And I had, you know, whatever money I had in my bank account, I took my car and I headed West and, um, you know, I, I made it in about three days, just driving 12 hours, 12 hours. I went through Oklahoma City, near That's your right. neck of the woods, and, um, you know, through Albuquerque and uh, Flagstaff, and then made it up to L.A. And, um, I, you know, I went to this, I didn't know anybody out there. And um, and I, I enrolled in, in, in this terrible school that called itself an acting academy in a film academy and I lived at this, I lived on this compound on Franklin and Highland, which if anybody's been to LA, they've most likely been to Hollywood and Highland, which is where the walk of fame is. It's where the, the Kodak theater, I think it's called the Dolby theater now where they have the Oscars. Um, and, and it's where, um, you know, you can see the Hollywood sign and, and the wax museum and Ripley's believe it or not. So it's one block North of that. And right across the street is the homeless mission, uh, which is where the Methodist churches, where they feed a lot of homeless people. And a lot of them lived in around there and I lived in just this terrible compound. And I went from living in a suburb in Kentucky where it's completely quiet at night to sleeping in this compound with a, a, on the second floor with a, a, um, a billboard light shining through my window. And we had... 18 students in this acting academy. I mean, I had like, and I, I had the bare bones. I had a little twin bed with no mattress. When I woke up, I had to get a mattress, um, uh, you know, a closet wardrobe with no door on it. There was no door on the room. Everybody shared a bathroom. There were like electrical wires hanging out of the top of the shower. I mean, it was basically the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> and I, and so I, and so I go through the, I start going through this acting and the people, the, the quote unquote coaches that this guy's bringing in are a joke. These people have never done anything professional in their life. And I remember when I enrolled in the thing, I had to get a background check. And we had this like 55 year old woman with no teeth and in, in our acting class. And she was always tweaking. And we searched her name and we found out that she was a wanted, uh, she was a wanted she was a wanted felon from the state of Arizona, uh, wanted for trafficking and possession of crack cocaine or methamphetamine, I think it was. And I'm, and I'm sitting here thinking, <laughs> wanted by the FBI, and this is our roommate. And, uh, and, and she's in acting class. And it, it, was, it was one of the worst experiences of my life. I, I came out of that school after six months. I didn't know how to act. I didn't know how to get a headshot. I didn't know what a headshot was. I didn't know what the resume should look like. I didn't know how to go about getting auditions, nothing. 
And so I had wasted all the money that I had saved up to move out there for this place because I had already paid room and board up front. I was like, look, at least it gets me six months to get on my feet and find out if I really like it. And so I come out of this thing and we started with 18 people. And by the time we finished, we finished with three people because everybody was like, the hell with this shit. I'm yeah, out. This yeah, is, I, if this is Hollywood, I don't want any part of it. And so I came out of this thing and I, I told myself, I'm like, there's no shot in hell. I'm going back to Kentucky right now after six months. People are going to laugh in my face. I don't know shit about acting. So I didn't do what I came out here to set out to do. And I have no money in my pocket. And so, and, but if this is the worst that it could be, then I can only go up from here. And so I found a motel called the Hollywood downtowner, which is about, it's in East Hollywood and it's right off Hollywood Boulevard. And it's in a real kind of seedy part of town, but recently it's, it's started to come up and I rented a, and I got a job, uh, at the end of when I was in school at the, at the quote unquote Academy, I got a job as a security guard at uh, the Hollywood experience. And it's just basically this tacky, tacky souvenir shop right across from the Dolby theater. Uh, and so I had enough money to where I was, I was basically all my money was going to the 53 bucks a, a night motel room that I got. And uh, they gave you breakfast every morning. And there was a, there was an East Indian family from Mumbai that ran it. And every day, this, this guy, his name's Bharat, but he, uh, Bharat, but he would, he, he just said, call me Bob. And um, we would just chat all the time. And he gave me a job and gave me an apartment. I had to, you know, I paid for the apartment, but he, he allowed me to rent one of his apartments in the back. And he gave me a job working the night audit at the Hollywood downtown or motel in East Hollywood. And man, I saw some, I saw some I crazy you shit. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Everything but the vampires oh, came out. Oh <laughs> man, I've been down there. And in fact, uh, I was always, for some reason, after I was in LA, I worked a night shift. So there was always that night where, you know, you get there, uh, when you first get there, you're, you got to do all your courses and your training a day. And then you got to try to stay up through the night so you can start night shift the next night. And mm -hmm. I took some drives, buddy, at four o'clock, 4 a.m., uh, down around LA. It's Man. crazy. It's crazy. It's a different kind of place. And it was, it was culture shock to me, just a, just a, a regular kid from Kentucky, you know, that, you know, it was pretty, was I sheltered? I, yeah. From being, from, from where I came from to out there, no doubt about it. Right. And then to see all that, but, but Bob, he, I mean, he hit a bad patch too. He had like a two, he had like a one and a half, $2 million house in Orange County, California. And then he had put all of his bones into this motel because he was a, a like a regional director for the Hyatt. And he, he said, I want to go out on my own. I'm tired of working for somebody else. I want to run my own shop. So we bought this Hollywood downtown or motel. And it's this historic landmark in Hollywood. It's got this cool neon sign. And uh, it's really a unique building. I mean, you've got to think that like, this was the it. This was probably a, a really cool place in the 60s and 70s. It's like something you'd see out of Tarantino's film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And um, so he put all of his bones into this motel and then 2008 hit. And the first thing that people stop doing when the market crashes and when everybody loses their jobs, they stop they stop traveling. And so he lost so much money that he had to move 
with his three boys and his wife into this motel. And so these guys went from living in Orange County, going to a real nice school to live in, in East Hollywood, right? Overnight. And so he took me in to his family. And I mean, they're like Bob and Shayla, his wife and, and his three sons are like my brothers. And they're like my West coast parents. I lived with them and I must've worked. I worked there for gosh, three or four years. And I was there just about every day uh, working the night audit. And I made a thousand dollar. I made 1080 bucks every two weeks. And my rental for my for my studio apartment in Hollywood, which was you know in the back alley behind the place, was thirteen hundred bucks a month. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> I was running out of minutes on my phone really quick. You know, I could only send text messages with Wi-Fi, or you know, so it was. Um, I, I ate a shitload of ramen noodles, uh, but I learned a lot, and I came out of it. You know, and I just and, and, and but to me, that was better than where I had started way better. And and then, you know, shortly after that, I, I met my wife on uh, in March 31st of 2012 in the April Fool's Day of 2012. And we've been together cool. ever so since. When did you uh, uh, do you remember your first check, your first check from uh, acting? Let's see. I did a lot did of you? free work. Yeah. In the beginning. Oh my gosh. They've got this thing called 125. It was a hundred bucks a day when I started. Now it's 125, but hundred dollars a day deferred. And that's where basically broke filmmakers who only have enough money to shoot the thing. Don't have to pay the actors. Um, unless the short film turns a profit and 99.999% of short films never make more than, 500 bucks hey, and that's something that we should i mean i know me that's a big shock and i know some of the listeners probably but you know by the time the mass public sees it and I, i've always believed this I, I thought man like hollywood's been working just on this movie and here it is but it's it's like there for every amazing blockbuster that makes it to the big screen there are thousands and thousands of people that go broke trying to produce a movie. Am I lying there? That's the kind of the gist that I've gotten from the little bit I got to see. Yeah, I think it's, I think it used to be that way a lot in the old days. And then the studios now, because it, it used to be producers would find the, the material and they'd go to like a Warner Brothers and they'd say, look, I can get the money from the investors, but I need you guys to distribute it. I need you guys because you have the theater hookups uh, and you have the sound stages and you have everything for us to make it. So we got to do some sort of deal and, and we'll raise the money outside and we'll bring it in and you guys get a cut of it because you have all this stuff. And then Warner Brothers and the other big studios looked at it and they said, why are we even allowing it to go elsewhere. Let's just take these producers who are finding all this good stuff. Let's just give them first look deals. We'll give them the money that we get from somewhere else and we'll help them produce it here and we'll distribute it and we'll reap all the benefits. Right? So now everything's really done mm -hmm. in house and everybody, let me tell you this. Everybody in Hollywood is a half a step from leaving at just about any point in their career. And I believe that because I mean, I'm gone. I'm in Texas. I'm not out of the industry, but 
Um, it's, uh, we've known executives, my wife and I have known executives that were, you know, top of their game running production for major studios and they are nervous as all get out every time a film comes out because if that film that they convinced everybody else that they spent $120 million on is going to be a hit and it tanks, they're gone. And it's not like they can just go get a job somewhere else. It's like, no, you, 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 uh, you had a string of bad movies over at, over at Warner brothers or wherever, you know, yeah. it's, you know, so, and these people, you know, it, it, and then what are you going to do? But the industry has become so complex because they're trying to make it worldwide because a lot of Americans don't go to movies anymore because there's just so much stuff out there. And so there's a lot of funding coming in from, uh, there's a lot of funding coming in from China and, and the middle East and elsewhere. And so they, um, you got to think about that. The reason that these people are so nervous, that's why they're making all of these franchises and all of these remakes of movies because they already have a built-in audience. And nowadays, it's also not something where they cast actors in the role. If, say you're on Instagram and you have 1.5 million followers. They would rather cast you, um, who've, who's never acted a day in your life, they'd, they'd much rather cast you in a part than me, even if it's two lines, because they know that your 1.5 million followers are going to hear about the movie when you blast it out on Instagram. Right. So they don't care so much about the creative merit of films anymore as, as much as they do about the money machine. And I mean, there, I think you're right that there are, there are a lot of people who go out there and they spend their ass on one film and nobody ever hears of it. And that's the, because it might take a decade for them to, it might take a decade for them to raise the money again to, to convince somebody else to shoot something, but it's so complex now because it's so hard to make money on smaller films. Yeah. And so, you know, when you see, like, say you see that a Marvel film that costs $200 million to make, and they're like, oh, they made a billion dollars at the box office. Well, that's not necessarily true because that's not factoring in all the print and advertising that they spent. You, if, if they say their budget's about $200 million, you can bet that they spent about $200 million in addition to that on advertising. Well, I, I think you're also hitting on something that is, is just this new world that we live in. And it is about the following and these Instagram, uh, what should we say? Uh, what do they call themselves? Like they're a, um, there um oh an instagram uh influencer. influencer thank you yeah so that's like the new cool job <laughs> be an influencer and um man it's something that everybody wants and to that's do. why i was so happy to have you and i thought it was so cool that you took a chance on on me and like jumped on this podcast because that's the first thing anybody looks at. like i've i've reached out and talked to some pretty well-known people and they all go we see you have seven hundred followers on Instagram or, or how many episodes do you have or how many downloads are you getting a month or how many and it's like well I gotta start somewhere like I I, I and then I just started going and we we will promise you this as well but like we've just started going well the first hundred episode we promise that in the next year to two years if you want to come back and sit down and have another episode whenever we have more of a following you can but it is a tough deal like I feel like I can't even get 
my foot in the door. And I honestly, I feel like I can relate to you being in the audition room, waiting in the waiting room, because I just love podcasts. I jumped in and I did it all wrong. I spent way too much money on the wrong things. And I get in and uh, I put out three episodes and then all of a sudden somebody comes up and was like, oh, you're trying to be like so-and-so with a very close name to what I have, by the way. And then, oh, you're trying to be like this other group over here. And, <laughs> and then you start walking down the street talking to people and you're like, oh, I got a podcast. Like, oh, I do too. And all of a sudden everybody <laughs> is podcasting. And when I started this thing, I was like, man, who wouldn't want to listen to me? Like talk to cool people. And then now I'm like, who the fuck would want to listen to me talking to cool people? <laughs> so it's been a, it's been a wild ride, but I've, I'm like you probably in that stage of like moving into that apartment, eating ramen, doing some crazy things. Like I, I told you, I'm about to leave to Minnesota. Uh, we are going to stop filming the show in the studio. We're going to put that on hold. I'm going to go to Minnesota, take a horse, live out a horse trailer, ride a horse every day, work on this pipeline job and and just do audio. I, I'm getting small, getting simple, and I'm not going to quit. And I love that's what I love about your story. And that's kind of what I'm taking from it is keep doing it, keep going. And that's really the only thing I got to separate myself from all these people. I'm sitting around. They look just like me. They're wearing that same leather jacket. They all got wonderful personalities. <laughs> all of them have money behind them. And I don't have that, you know, and I'm looking around going, I don't know how I'm going to get the part. But so it's so cool that you you actually made this effort and you reached out to me and you're the first person on the show that actually reached out to me and wanted to be part of this. And that just makes me feel very special. So thank you. Yeah, well, you're going to have, I was telling my wife the uh, the other day when you were telling me about this new gig, this new venture that you're going on, I was like, I was like, honey, if, if, if I didn't have you or the kids, I would be, I would be in the shotgun seat with Taos going to, going to Northern Minnesota for 10 months. Cause that would make one hell yes, of a book. You better believe it. And you better believe there'd be a spot for you. Um, I, I did. I, I quit my corporate job. I wasn't a good fit. It was really tough because that was the job I had been working pretty much my whole career, all my twenties. Um, now I'm 32. I made it to the top spot and it was nothing like I thought it was nothing. I didn't fit in. It wasn't working. Nothing bad to say. No, it was nobody. It was just, I wasn't happy and I up and quit. And then, um, I got the opportunity to go be part of a big pipeline job up, uh, up North and, get back on my feet financially and, and promote this podcast. And, and uh, yeah, so you would definitely be able to tag along, man. <laughs> yeah. I would say in another life that it sounds miserable and misery sure does breed a lot of stuff for creativity. And that is, I mean, not, I mean, I, it sounds miserable, but I think, I think it's, Personally, I think well, it's be awesome. I appreciate that. You know, it's the stuff it has that... the likeliness. It's going to be absolutely cold. I think it's like negative ten degrees last night there, and I'm going to be in a horse trailer, oh, um, uh, just out in the middle of nowhere, and um, and come to find out, Minnesota's big, and I'm going to the very top. So, um, going, going to the top. top those lakes are frozen, <laughs> man. Yeah, I'm already. You walk right across those lakes. I'm you don't need to a boat. I'm going to do ice fishing. <laughs> I'm going to find a way to do it. I don't know anybody up there, but I'm going to, I'm going to do it. And, um, yeah, see what I've always, I, I don't even, I, I, I've never even wanted to do that. I just heard that they're frozen and I, I got to check it out. So, uh, well, I'm going to reach out to my brother-in-law. He used to live in Rochester, Minnesota, and we used to go hunting, uh, Thanksgiving. We used to go, 
uh, we would go duck hunting, shoot some geese, and then we'd go way up to this little shit cabin in Emily, Minnesota, which is north of Minneapolis by, by like what, probably three hours. And we would go into this cabin. And I remember the first time I went, I brought in the case of beer and I walked in, I was like, where the hell's your fridge? And he's like, don't need one. Floor's not insulated. Just put them on the floor. They'll get ice cold. (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was negative 20 that weekend. And holy shit, I wore this. I, whatever I showed up in is what I wore for the like four straight days. And I would just put the coveralls on, you know, sleeping in the coveralls basically. And we had this little, wood burning furnace that we slept next to i've never been so cold in my life but man it, it was a shitload of fun and he's used to it he's born and raised minnesota and man he we're, he's out there um tracking fishers and, and coyotes and and uh you know we're following wolf tracks i mean the guy could have his own discovery you know he could have his own discovery show because it's just amazing how much he knows about oh. wildlife and how much you know, you know, like how peaceful it is when you get up in the morning before the sun rises and you hear the animals start to wake up and you're in the middle of nowhere and the wind's blowing and biting your face. And that's like, man, that's, that, there's a real aspect of that that's living that people in these urban cities just may never experience. Man, I'm, I'm going to be layered you know? up like a Super Bowl cheese dip and uh, I will, I guarantee you, <laughs> this skinny white boy will have layers on and, uh, Oh yeah, Man, got I know to. we're getting close here to to um, extending. Getting it doesn't matter what time, but um, I did have two questions for you, just kind of random uh, questions, and then uh, yep. we'll wrap it up here. But the first question, and this um, is, if you could have any role, what any actor, any part in any movie that you've ever seen, what would the role be? Gosh, that's a tough one. But the first one that comes to mind is Tom Cruise and Collateral. <laughs> oh, dude, Tom Cruise. Yes. Tom Cruise and Collateral. Vincent, who's the, you remember that movie where he rides around in the back of Jamie uh-huh. Foxx's cab all night and he whacks like six people? <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he is. That, I think, is probably one of the most underrated performances. He, he doesn't get a lot of credit for how good of an actor he is. And, um, I mean, perfect timing, too. He's in the media right now for going Christian Bale on a few folks yeah. on set. But um, he uh, that that role, I, I watched the behind the scenes of how he trained with the handgun. And, um, I mean, that was, shit, that was awesome. Last Samurai that he was in, that was awesome. Um, I don't know. I don't know. That's a tough man. I would, I wish that's, that's really hard. I, what about you? If you could, I would have to say, if I could be anybody, I want to do two parts. If I could be in a movie, it would be Val Kilmer in a tombstone. I'd have to take that role. I mean, he did that so well. And, yeah. uh, and then in a show, my favorite TV show to this day is Peaky Blinders and Tommy Shelby and Peaky Blinders is an absolute, oh man, my man crush, dude. He is awesome. So yeah, it would definitely be those two, but Val Kilmer uh, playing dog. I watched that Blinders um, when I was working at the motel pretty, pretty relentlessly. And I remember it's funny. I, I got to tell your listeners that when I was, uh, 
basically interviewing for this for this pod when I was auditioning for this podcast position, I was on my way out to Texas and there were so many people leaving California from Texas that I was I was talking to you, Taos, and I was like, Man, I, I there's nobody that can ship my there there's nobody that can ship my trucks out and, and, and what did you tell me? I said me? uh We'll get somebody heading your way right now. <laughs> yeah. No, you, you said um, you said that your family's a lot like That's the right. Peaky Blinders yeah, like family. The Lee family in the Peaky Blinders. Yeah, like like I said, we'd head out there, but we're our. I can't really talk about how we get things done, and it may not exactly be legal. <laughs> we're going to exactly, get it done. Peaky Blinders, the Lee families—they're kind of the outskirts. But when you need something done that needs to be under the table, you holler at them. Man, we are like that here. We we get the job done, but don't don't exactly ask. You know if that truck's tagged or if we know DOT if we got DOT numbers. <laughs> so yeah, man, um, that's awesome. I forgot I told you that, but I I yeah, I'm so glad you made it to Texas, and, and uh, I'm glad you took a chance and was on this podcast and. And finishing up here, where can people get the book? The book's on sale uh, at Amazon right now, $9.99 in paperback and $2.99 in Kindle format. And we're about, you, if, you, if you live in the Midwest, Oklahoma, or Oklahoma, if you live in, uh, I think it's, it is in Oklahoma, actually. Oklahoma, Texas, all the way up to Montana, Wyoming, South Dakota, North Dakota, Colorado, we're all over the Midwest in, in bookstores. If you, lo- if you saunter into your local independent bookstore, there's a good chance in the Midwest. Well, that's cool, there. man. And uh, one one last thing, too, is what are you up to now and, and what's next on uh, in the career? What, what, where can we see you uh, do your thing? So I'm, I, right before COVID shut down, I worked on an episode of Narcos down in Mexico City. Oh, what a cool uh, show. And that'll come. Oh, it was an awesome show, and it was. Uh, I spent about a month down in Mexico City, and, and when you when you see the part, I mean, if you blink, you'll miss me, you know, and you'd be like, "Damn, he spent a month in Mexico City for that." But there's so many different things that go into shooting, uh, logistics wise, and especially with customs. But so I, I worked on that, and and that'll come out. I play a narcotics detective on that thing, uh, and that was shoot we shot the whole month of february and then covid shut everything down and i went back to the states and that was the end of it and they just kind of started picking up shooting again uh and then in theaters i think in next july i'm in one of, i'm in the last purge film those purge films are uh, a pretty big hit oh, in the I franchise and they're they're like i'm not even a scary movie guy but i think they're awesome and they broke records right they they're like known for like being one of the most um lowest budget films that has made the most money is that right yeah that's right i mean it the the first purge with ethan hawk is right on line with uh tarantino's pulp fiction in terms of i think they both were shot on nine million dollar budgets granted 20 years apart so nine million today mm-hmm. is a lot less but made you know they both made over 100 million at the box office so which is a you know, there's a big hit. And, um, so I'm in one of those, I'm in that film and, um, I play just kind of like a mercenary type guy. And my wife, you know, I think she's really happy that, that that year of shooting is over because I had a mustache for like, a really <laughs> thick, like badass thing for, for that film and for Narcos. And she's like, I can't even look at you <laughs> when this, when this role is done. 
Shave that shit off oh, your face. Oh, that's great. Well, well, thank you, and, and thank your family for letting me take you for a little bit here, and, and I'm just excited. And If you're ever in Tulsa, let me know, and dinner's on me, and then, uh, yeah, if you need some shady stuff done, call the Hayes family, like the Lee family. So, I, wanted, I want to ask you, too, about Tulsa, because – I mean, right after I right right after I released the book, the Supreme Court released a decision in favor uh, of the mm-hmm. Creek Indians and granted the land of Tulsa. Said it was rightfully theirs. So, what's it like living? Has anything changed, or have you noticed any difference? The only thing like? that I have heard uh, is that the the tension between uh, the jurisdictions, like the the cops. Um, like the tribal cops and our Tulsa city cop has gotten right. very tough. And then uh, sadly enough, the, like if there's any kind of murder or um, homicide or anything, you know, they're, they're having issues of who is taking responsibility of that and who's not. And there's a lot of people getting right. kind of caught in the middle, but um, I do not know. And I, I also am very sad to say I, I haven't been home much um, and I probably need to get, a little more up and research that a little more, but um, I don't know. It is a touchy subject. Uh, I know for some people, sure. I mean, the, the Indian culture is alive and well here in Oklahoma and you don't have to go far and you're, you're on some tribes territory. Now I think you, everywhere is their territory. <laughs> so it's a, it's a weird deal. And right. I don't know where the line is drawn or anything. I know Osage, I, I got a lot of friends up in Osage and uh, I'm actually hoping to have somebody on the podcast that they have a wonderful story. And that is, it's a switch and you could write a book about this man, but a lady who at eight years old inherited 3000 acres in uh, 3000 acres in Osage County. And well, the, the Indians, so the Indians, the Osage tribe owns the Royal, the royalties to that so they gave um they gave the devon energy yeah the drilling company devon energy the rights to drill um in her backyard so like they had drilled all over her land she didn't mind but like they put like they were setting a rig up like like 200 feet yeah outside her feet away from her back door she hired a lawyer and this little white woman took on the, the tribe and Devon Energy and went back like 30 or 40 years and found some documentation that absolutely got the whole thing overturned. And she single-handedly pretty much kicked off Devon Energy off of her land. And it's such a fascinating story because a lot of the Indian argument is, um, is that, you know, the white man came in and then exploited their land and then used it all up and, and they took all the money. And it's funny because the role was actually switched where the Osage Indians owned the rights to the land and they took the money, not worried a bit about being in this woman's backyard and uh, where she even right. said, hey, you can go this far away and, and drill. We don't mind, but like right here. And it's just funny that how greed works. And that is come to find out it doesn't matter what ethnicity, color, religion or what you believe. Uh, greed can get a hold sure of you, and the Indians in this case were the ones who were um, pushing. Now, somebody can say, well, she's white and they're Indian. It's their land. But at the end of the day, 
they were willing to exploit the land and pull the oil out and cash in on the money despite who it bothered. And uh, it's just a cool story on either either side of it. Um, I just think it's fascinating that the role was switched. And then this lady, I mean, I don't think she's five foot tall. She's so soft-spoken. In fact, I worry about having her on the podcast because I don't know if the mic will even pick her up, but um, she's so soft-spoken, <laughs> but she went in there and freaking kicked them out, told them to pack their shit. And so uh, it's kind of cool. Yeah. When even, yeah, that's great. I mean, that's greed is greed is, is universal and anybody gets a chance to, to, to accept it. Uh, m- most people take it. That's a, that's a weird phenomenon. There's been so much stuff about that, but man, I can't tell you. Thank you so much Thank for you. having me on. I, well, enjoyed- I hope, I hope you enjoyed this and I hope also that you'd, you'd come back one day whenever you're doing something big and, and, and let me be a part of that as well. So. Well, shoot. I'm, I, I'd love to, I'm, I'm about halfway through a novel right now. Um, it, it, it's a, it's my hate letter towards Hollywood and, and, the, and the industry and it's semi-autobiographical, but it's a lot wackier ride than that. Um, and, uh, and we're turning sacred land into a radio play, which is going to be awesome. It's going to, we're going to do, um, we're in the middle of casting right now. We've got a lot of great actors that are coming on board to voice all the characters and it's going to be basically, it's going to be the, the film or the TV show without the picture. So people can listen to it in their cars or on long trips. And I'm excited about that because it's, it's not just going to be a, an audio book, you know, it's going to be a, a real That's deal. Play. Awesome, man. And I'm going to go to Minnesota, get that knocked out. And when I get home, I want to reach out to you and see if you have an opportunity for me to accomplish one of my, my all time goals and dreams. And that is, I want a chance to audition. Now I don't want the part, like if I got the part, that'd be great. I'm not saying I want it inside or I want special treatment. I just want the opportunity to fail in that way and audition and try it out and see what it's like just to say I've done it. So if you ever have that opportunity, you can just let me you know. You got it. <laughs> you got it, man. Right. Yeah, You're that'd awesome, be great. Brett. And uh, man, do you have anything else you need to say or throw out there? Shoot, no, this has been great. I can't wait to come All back. Right. You're awesome. awesome. And, and uh, <laughs> stay in touch with me, 